Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Created for those committed to mastery and success. Coming to you from Manly, Australia, we break down the science and philosophy of optimal performance so you can unleash your potential. Welcome to the Flow State Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jira Taylor, and this is episode number 34. Today I speak to Michael Graziano, Professor Michael Graziano. He's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. His research focuses on the brain, it focuses on awareness, um, and he focuses on consciousness. So he's proposed quite a controversial theory, um, an explanation of how consciousness works. And he's written a couple of really amazing uh, thought-provoking books. One was God, Soul, Mind, Brain, a neuroscientist reflection on the spirit world. And his most recent book is called Consciousness and the Social Brain. He's also a composer, he's also a novelist and a ventriloquist, and he's just a very interesting guy. So you're going to really enjoy this conversation. We talk about how he cracks the creative process, and uh, there's a very interesting technique that he reveals. So enjoy the show, guys. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. It's a great honor to have you on. Um, a man who spent so much of his life studying fascinating things like the brain and consciousness. How are you today? I'm very good. It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. So just so we can physically place you, where, where are you right now? I'm in Princeton, New Jersey. Princeton, New Jersey. Cool. Yes. And um, tell us a little bit about um, what you've been working on lately. Uh, or or, or give, us, give the listener a quick breakdown in terms of who you are. Uh, well, I'm a... I'm a neuroscientist, really a psychologist and neuroscientist. And I've studied a range of topics, but these days in the last five years, my lab has been studying this topic of consciousness. Um, it's one of the most difficult questions to study, but we study the brain basis of consciousness and, and what it is and what it might mean and how neurons might produce these kinds of effects. Wow. And as you say, it's got to be one of the most slippery and uh, difficult area to, to focus on. And have, have theories of consciousness gone through quite a bit of change in uh, academic circles over the last 10, 20 years? Well, yes and no. There's a lot of different kinds of theories out there. And there's a certain tendency for what I would call magicalist theories that are very popular and still are and always have been uh, theories that in the end resort to some kind of magic essence that floats out of the brain or something. Uh, and um, so th th those kinds of theories are still around, but we, we're really focusing on a different direction and that is trying to understand in as um, objective a way as possible without having to resort to what sometimes people call the metaphysical gap. <laughs> okay, but you wrote a book called God, Soul, Mind, Brain, a neuroscientist reflection on the spirit world, which yes. to me just sounds controversial from the get-go in, <laughs> in terms of you being a, a scientist. Right. Well, what, we, what that book is really about is trying to understand from a scientific basis, from a brain basis, what people mean when they talk about mind, when they talk about 
um, soul and when they talk about uh, spirituality or religiosity. So it's a it's a very non-religious and overtly atheistic account of why people are religious and why we um, are, believe we have a kind of magical soul inside of us. And why do we believe we have a magical soul inside of us? Well, it's a very tricky question. <laughs> but, uh, and it's one, a question that, that, that traces back to studies with primates from with, uh, what I've read. Sure, well, of course, it traces back in history a very long time. Uh, thousands of years, yeah. but the the what, one of the angles that we take on it is that people are social animals, yeah, and we have enormously complicated machinery in our brains that allows us to uh, be socially intelligent. And the main chunk of social intelligence is this ability to create really elaborate models of other people's minds. And kind of project those models onto other people. To to in in, uh, in effect, we have this impression that there's uh, emotions and thoughts and awareness emanating out of other people. And of course, that's not a, that's not the other person's real mind. That's our brains generating a handy model of a mind and projecting it onto that person. Uh, so it's a construct. It's um, information constructed in our own brains that's useful in tracking other people. And, of course, we do this to more than just people. We attribute minds to people, to pets, to some people attribute consciousness to plants or to the spaces around us uh, and also to ourselves. And so there's this kind of an underlying process that's very similar in all of these different circumstances. Uh, so kind of the whole range of the spirit world from deities to ghosts to the spirits in other people to the spirit in ourselves, these things are, in a sense, constructs of our social intelligence. So consciousness is an illusion? Is a, is a, is, are you saying consciousness is a construct of my own awareness? Well, illusion, some people use that term, and I'm not 100% sure what they mean by that. Uh, I think different people mean different things by that. I'm not quite sure I would use that particular word. Uh, there is a subtlety there, though. I, I would say that the the key to, to to understanding the mind is that the mind is information, and the mind is like a trillion stranded sculpture made out of information, and it's constantly changing, and it's just full of information. And so everything that we say, everything we assert, everything we believe is really intricate, complex information. So when we say, yes, I'm conscious and I have inner feelings and I have an experience of this and, you know, qualia or phenomenology or whatever the terms are people use, we can say that because we have this very rich information that depicts that. Uh, so that's what the mind is. It's depictions of things, depictions of things in the outside world, depictions of some of our own internal processes. Uh, so whether that's an illusion or not, I don't know. But it's information at any rate. Interesting. So, so what are the implications? So, so for that book, God, Soul, Mind, Brain, what are your views on spirituality? 
Well, first of all, it's really deeply ingrained in, in, in people. I think it's built in in an evolutionary sense. Uh, because we're such social animals, we come strongly predisposed to see spirit or mind in things around us. Uh, we come strongly predisposed to interpret complex behavior in the environment as the product of some kind of intelligent being, right? So we come almost people have um, almost no choice. I mean, we, we, even people who are atheistic or non-spiritual get mad at their coffee machine, you know, and everyone gets the spooky feeling at night when you're alone <laughs> in the house that there's like a mysterious presence in the other room. And we can get to the point where intellectually we know that's not true, but you can't help the perception. So s spirituality at all levels uh, is I think something really deeply ingrained in us. It's not like a mistaken theory that people can just push aside. Okay. So that that's okay. one one implication. Okay. And okay, let's let's talk about your personal life. So so I know that you're a musician um, and you're a composer, right? Yes. And I imagine that you've um, had some experiences with other musicians. Um, yes, sure. Have you are you familiar with the term collective resonance or collective flow? What what do these concepts mean to you? Or, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, collective flow. Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer in being able to describe complicated systems at multiple levels, and so I know there are people who are very materialistic, very reductionist, who would say there's no such thing. It's all uh, everything exists at the atomistic level. Um, and we can understand people interacting with each other at a very atomistic level. I think, there is, of course, there is that atomistic level, but with a system so complex as a bunch of people sitting together playing music, it becomes incredibly useful to have these very high-level descriptions like flow. Uh, you know, there's a certain mood one gets into. You get into the groove or something. These things, they're these very valid concepts. Um, so, uh, you know... I experience them too, of course. And what what do they mean to you? I mean, what are they? When I think about musicians, I think about orchestras, and I think about orchestras, and and I imagine that sometimes, just like with any elite group, there's a there's a marked difference between when they're in one state and then when they're in another state, and there'll be this one performance which stands out in the lives of all those participants as being that time where everybody was just hitting the note at the right time and yeah. it was just yeah. it was just beautiful well is is this just is this just dumb luck is this just is there some sort of communication going on between between their brains yeah well uh, first of all of course as a composer i get less of that <laughs> i'm much more on my own kind of isolated okay, okay. Uh, and then the orchestra can figure out um, but, uh, I, I also, I do a fair amount of improvisation. Um, in fact, that's almost all I do anymore. <laughs> I sit down at the keyboard and see, talk about flow, what flows out. And I certainly experience times when it just ain't working and times when it's just clicks and everything works. And, uh, you know, I don't really understand what the differences are between those two times. There are, there are moments when, my brain is working just right, and all the all the components are are lined up. Um, I've certainly been fascinated by that and w yeah. why that yeah. is. I I don't know. Yeah. Um, 
Well, I chatted to, uh, last week I chatted to a, a guy called Dr. Judson Brewer, um, who's a expert in the use of, the application of mindfulness um, in addictions. Mm. Um, yeah, and he's a very interesting guy. And he, his theory is basically that flow happens when we get out the way of ourselves. So, and, and, I, mm. and I guess this ties in with concepts of transient hypofrontality, which is what Arne Dietrich talks about when parts of the prefrontal cortex that kind of monitor or control sense of self and sense of time, those, those areas seem to de- downregulate uh, during flow. Um, That's interesting. So yeah. my impression, and this is speaking just of my own personal experience, that there are two kinds of modes that are really useful. I mean, there's some other modes that are much less useful, but the two kinds that are really useful yeah. are kind of high prefrontal, very self-conscious and very aware of each little detail. And when in that mode, the output is not high quality. It's stilted, but you need that to improve. This is almost like the learning mode. It helps you deconstruct where you are and put the pieces back together in new ways. Uh, then there's the low prefrontal uh, um, contribution mode where you just put your criticality aside and you don't think about what you're doing and you let the, um, you know, well, you let the flow, you let the output flow. And that is generally much higher quality output. But you can't get, you can't learn the high quality output unless you put yourself through the process of uh, minutely deconstructing what you're doing. So there's a certain kind of flipping back and forth between these two modes, and bit by bit you improve in, in your um, in your skills. That, that's my impression. Yeah, I think that ties in with with a, a lot of the other discussions I've had with 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 scientists, and also with personal experience. The two modes I view the two modes as um, yeah, the high prefrontal cortex, which sorts, which is kind of like what we call the executive functions, where we're yeah. like um, analyzing and yes. judging. And I guess this is, this is what is characterized by uh, beta brainwave state, um, apparently. Um, wow. And then apparently when the prefrontal cortex is, is downregulated or areas of it are downregulated, then that's when we are operating from a, what Arne Dietrich calls our implicit system, which ah. is our subconscious, which is rapid um, and we're basically drawing on prior life experience. Oh. And this is characterized by much slower uh, brainwave activity. Oh. Um, and the reason why I'm passionate about learning all I can about this and experiencing flow states in my life is because I believe that one of the reasons why we have a culture that has so much problems with anxiety and stress and all those sorts of things is because we have a culture that really pl- places a emphasis on the former brain state the prefrontal cortex brain state and we we see all the constructs in our culture like the way offices are set up the way companies have smart goals and kpis and like we're very much goal driven and analyzing and judging and i believe that it's led to this um, over-reliance on this prefrontal state Um, this is just my personal theory Um, and i I believe that when we flow um, or when we achieve those states where things are just coming out from you, 
it's, it's really valid and it's really important for our human experience because we're actually experiencing probably a more original state. Um, and it seems to be a state, and this is why, what I wanted to talk to you about. When I'm in that flowing state, I experience harmony. Um, I experience like a sense of well-being. Um, sometimes I feel a sense of harmony with the people around me. Um, oh. but, but that kind of anxious, conflicted um, need to, I guess, feed my ego or be secure um, fades away. And, you know, life flows, you know, it's a more pleasant right. experience um, right. when I'm in that state. Right. Well, I, yeah, I, you, so some of this, I can only speak to from personal experience rather than the, the scientific side. Some of it, the, the neuroscience plays into a little bit. Uh, but yeah, certainly I get the feeling that there's, well, the, the, the way I tend to think of it, there's a, because I spend so much time improvising at the keyboard, yeah. I tend to think that there's a kind of improvisational mode. Yeah. And there's a kind of, I guess you would say, a, a compositional mode. You know, in, in composing, you can sit down with paper and pencil and think it through one note at a time and think all the little details and try to get it. Or you can just improvise and stuff comes out. Yeah. And th these are these are totally different processes. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, a lot of what I do, I try to think of in that framework. There are a lot of things that people do that they try to uh, construct in, in a kind of um, rational sense that actually work better if you improvise. Absolutely. And, um, to give an example, um, writing. Well, as a scientist, you write papers all the time. Yeah. And um, one of the skills, one of the things people do when they try to write papers is they sit down and they construct it one little bit at a time, and it's very frustrating and very difficult, and it can drive you crazy. Uh, but at some point, I guess I realized that what I really need to do is learn an improvisational skill to sit down and improvise a paper. Cool. <laughs> and then you can take it apart and put it together. But the, the, uh, so what's, what's really important is this long learning trajectory, not local to one paper, but learning in general, how to have the, uh, words and thoughts and, um, um, scientific organization um, automatized to the point that you you can kind of improvise a paper. Yeah, if that makes any sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, so just for the listeners out there, so Michael is also not only uh, an academic and a writer of peer-reviewed articles and and uh, and and academic type of books, but he's also a, you're also a novelist, right? Yes, uh, and same what, thing works there. Yeah, but but very different. This is interesting because it's a very different style of writing. Yes. It? And with the academic style, you have certain rules. Like to get something peer-reviewed, there's a certain type of tone and a, and you have to include certain type of things. Like there's rules to the game, aren't there? Yes. Yes, sure. Whereas when you're writing novels, it's you're you're free to play, aren't you? You make up your own rules a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah. But uh but I guess the, ultimately there's one rule for all of it, and that is there's an audience, <laughs> and you write for the audience. And um, 
talk about the social brain, that's kind of what's most active when you're writing is you're putting yourself in the mind of your audience and how are they going to react and you're playing to the audience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I think is probably the same thing for a musician too. Yeah, I suppose. Do you, do, do you look at like when you compose, are you thinking about an audience or are you thinking about what you would like? Uh, in some funny way, I guess there's always a part of me that's in the mindset of an audience. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Okay. Even if it's perhaps yourself in the audience, maybe, or someone like yourself in the audience. I think you can't help it. I mean, you can't help this little voice in the back of your head that says, you know, everyone's going to think that sucks. So throw yeah. that part. Yeah. Oh, sometimes when I, like, I can relate to what you're saying with the writing that I've done. Like, there's two types for me. There's writing for an audience, and then there's writing with no filter, where I actually don't care about if anybody reads it. Um, I, actually, I actually don't think about an audience. And that's oh. the sort of state I get into when things just flow out of me. See, I see. Have you ever ex experienced that kind of sensation where there's no audience and you just blur? <laughs> I well, I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm not sure those two are s so separated in that way. Okay, I'm sort of always somehow audience-minded, but can still do it in a highly intellectual stilted way which is kind of slow and doesn't flow very well and i'm being hypercritical of myself or i can do it in a much more improvisational way but improvisation to me kind of thrives off the audience if the audience is there if there's no audience and i'm by myself it's quite really hard to improvise with flair you know there's True. no re reflected emotion coming back so Absolutely. So, so, so improvisation in front of an audience, I, I understand. But are you talking about using or creating the kind of improvisation vibe when you're writing by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. Do you deliver in front of lecture halls as part of your, your, your position? You I, um, I teach. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, my lectures, I have an outline. It's a brief outline. And then I just get up there and blah, stuff comes out. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I was, at a, I was at a conference last week and um, one of the, it was, one of the guys was talking about how he wrote a book and he, it took him eight hours to write a book. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, he obviously, that doesn't include the copywriting and, uh, I mean, the um, proofreading and all that sort of stuff, but basically saying the main body of the book he wrote in eight hours. And he said what he did was, for each chapter, he created a framework. So he said, okay, so there has to be uh, an introduction. There has to be like three or four main points for this chapter. There has to be some evidence to, to back up this, these points. There has to be a case study or a personal story to back it all up. And there has to be a wrapping conclusion. And he just created a framework with boxes that he had to fill in. And then he just got a recorder out and just started talking. And then he just sent these... And then he just, you know, that chapter took him like half an hour, send it to the editor, they type it up, <laughs> yeah. he said he was done. And what he's talking about is creating the framework, like having rigidity uh, or discipline, um, but within that we, we play and we flow and we're creative. Yeah. And that seems to be what, what you're talking about also. Yeah, sure, yeah. Although, consider this, it may sound like, oh great, he wrote a whole book in eight hours, but... Uh, <laughs> Think of how many hours and years it took for him to learn oh, the skill. Absolutely. And 
that's kind of how I think of improvisation. I mean, I could sit down and improvise an hour long piece, you know, and record it. And there it is. I could orchestrate it and I yeah. composed a symphony in an hour, you know, yeah. in real time. Yeah. Uh, of course, it wouldn't be very good if I did that, but <laughs> I could try that. Anyway, I could have this whole large piece, but really it's not, when with improvisation, it's not constructing a piece in that period of time because the, the it's constructing a piece over years and years and years of training up your improvisational brain areas mm. to the point that they can perform and then letting them perform and it's really a, it's a fundamentally different approach yeah it's very interesting so w would you say in your practical application let's talk about in music or any sort of improvisation uh -huh. what would you say just to clarify is the difference between grade a output that you're super proud proud of and happy with versus uh -huh. output that you just put in the bin Oh, well, for me, in my experience, um, when I overthink it, it's terrible. Um, but I, I learn from overthinking it. And so if I make sure to overthink my music on a regular basis, it improves the non-overthought music. Uh, <laughs> The stuff that's high quality is almost always in this flow state that you're talking about. It yeah. could be improvised. It could be a, a kind of very similar to improvisation, but on paper, just ideas come out. You get a framework. You can always go back and, and edit it. Uh, I put music or writing or anything through fairly severe layers and layers of editing to get it into a, 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 a better state. Yeah. Um, I think that that – yeah, you you have to start with something that's more improvisational, that's more okay. a performance, okay, and okay. then take it and put it through uh, a very rigorous um, okay. improvement and editing process. Would you and would you say that the editing and improvement process is is more relying on that other kind of thinking that we we're yes. talking about the the non prefront yes. uh, no the prefrontal way of thinking the anal yes. analysis and critique kind of mode okay so you're sort of yeah. blending so first of all you're coming to a creative project um, and you're basically getting out the way of yourself yeah. so that you can express and then yeah. you're and then you're revisiting this creative output and you're using your critical mind to yes. edit and refine condense cut out bits just generally yes. improve okay yes sometimes obsessively so <laughs> yeah which yeah, gets yeah. Away sometimes but yeah. yes Okay, that's awesome. That's interesting. That provides a, a good, a good lesson for us all. I think. Yeah, I think like it's it's valid to point out that um, being in that flow state uh, alone, in isolation, um, is is sort of like jelly on a plate. You know, we, it's it's kind of we need rigidity sometimes. We need, we need you know obviously the prefrontal cortex is like the pinnacle of evolution, right? It's like the smartest bit of the smartest thing in the whole universe, apparently. <laughs> yes. So, yes. So we really should bring it to force in 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 the stuff that we're doing, but just maybe not at the beginning. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. What do you think about um, ego? Like, what's what's the function and and practical use, and how, how do you think about ego as a concept so by ego do you mean uh 
excessive personal pride or do you mean just understanding of oneself as a person? The latter, the concept of self. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, in order to function, well, here, I'll start with something really basic and um, reductionist. There's a concept that um, comes from robotics, basically, uh, or control theory, as it's called, that if you want to control something, you should have information about it what's called an internal model information. So you, you have a robot and it wants to control an arm. It better have a simulated arm information that tells it what an arm is and what its arm is doing and, that, uh, and what the consequences of movement are. If you're a general and you're controlling an army, it's really useful to have a, a simulated army. You know, the general has the little army men on the map. That's his model of the of the larger army. It's very, very hard to control anything at all with any effectiveness if you don't have some simplified, simulated version of it that you can uh, use to monitor the real thing. Now, that scales to every circumstance, every type of uh, control that you can imagine. And... Effectively, we're agents in a really complicated world, and our job is to control our behavior so that we can interact with the world. Uh, And one of the things we need is a really reasonably good internal model of ourselves. You can't interact with the world if you don't have some sense of what you are, what your uh, behavior might be, what the consequences of this and that type of behavior might be. You have to have some kind of uh, probably slightly simple, probably hugely simplified internal construct or simulation of of yourself as a thing, as an agent. Uh, without that, you can't interact properly with the world. You could, you know, move your arms without understanding that you're doing it, and without computing the right consequences. So, I think our sense of self is a rich, complicated simulation of the self. It's, it's information that we need in order to interact with the world. Uh, okay, what, and what, what do you think about this concept of, of duality or this idea that um, we are, you are not your thoughts? Um, maybe you are, you are not your mind. Like f- for me, just in my personal experience, um, I sometimes have experiences where I'm very much, I feel very much in my head or in my thoughts and it's, you know, and then I might have a, another sort of experience where I can almost view my thoughts um, as, a, as an observer. And I guess this is, you know, where my meditation practice comes in. Um, but what's, what's your take on, on that dualistic uh, view? Well, in, in consciousness research, Uh, Most people, me included, tend to separate out two different things. And uh, one is the stuff you're conscious of. And the other is the process of being conscious of it. All right. So most people, when you talk to people casually about consciousness, they say, oh, my consciousness is my thoughts or it's my memories. That's really important because that tells me who I am. It's uh, my knowledge that I'm a person. Uh, But most people who study consciousness would say, no, that's not actually – that's the content of consciousness. That's the stuff you're conscious of. 
But then there's this other mystery. How do you get to be conscious of it? Hmm. Uh, right? I mean, you can have a book full of all that same information, but it's not conscious. It has all the right information. A computer has self-knowledge. It has a file that describes itself. It has all kinds of um, uh, memories and, and, and so on, but it do, it's not conscious of the information. Uh, so um, this may map on a little to what you're talking about. I mean, there's some process that's in some way separate from the content of consciousness. So you could be aware of your thoughts or yeah. sometimes you're not. You're aware of the sensory world around you in, in, in an intense way and, and not conscious of thoughts in your head. But whatever it is, you're, you're conscious of something. But there is this separation between this process of being conscious of it mm. versus the thing you're conscious of. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It seems to me like that, that a, lot, a, a lot of the problems that we, we have in this world are kind of the problem of this, this, this idea of separation. Like we have, uh, we feel separate from the other. Like there's this thing called the bystander effect. I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard of it. Yeah, sure. Where we can see someone just suffering there and we're just like, nah, we're not going to do anything about it. We feel we're separate from them. Um, versus in my personal experience and a lot of the people in my life um, who view themselves as spiritual people, um, they will deliberately uh, practice or elicit or do some sort of thing, whether it's... Um, a psychoactive substance or a shamanic ritual or some sort of breathing exercises or maybe a kirtan, which is sort of like chanting all in the same space. But they will embark on some kind of activity which is about breaking down that separation, I guess. And for them, it's a very valid part of their life. Like they, they, and for me as well, like I feel like this altered state of consciousness, I don't know if that's a term that you use, but this altered state of consciousness, it seems like a valid way for me to grow and to reflect and to feel compassion um, and empathy for my fellow beings. Right. Well, I mean, from the scientific point of view, we're nowhere near understanding anything like that. That's, you know, the science of consciousness is still uh, obsessed with how is it that you're conscious of the color red? <laughs> you know, it's like it was a really basic question. And if you could understand that, you could slowly get to these more complex issues. Um, but I still would say, and this is part of the perspective we've taken, that there's this really deep connection between consciousness or awareness or whatever you want to call it and social interaction. Yeah. And one of the reasons why we have our really rich human-like consciousness is because we're such social animals. And we almost live in this matrix or this gelatin of invisible consciousness stuff that we project onto spaces and people around us. And this is what binds us together. It's sort of what makes us successful as, as a species is this ability to, to link from person to person. And this depends absolutely critically on being able to perceive awareness and consciousness and mind in other people. So these bystander effects that you're talking about, they're very pronounced if you can get people to dehumanize other people. You know, if, if, if person A views person B as a, a thing without a mind, basically an automaton or something, a mm. dehumanized mm. object, 
then it's very easy to ignore, um, you know, this is like the, the way the uh, Nazi party was taught to uh, think about their disaffected groups, was to dehumanize them and, and treat them as non-conscious um, objects. Mm. Uh, so uh, there's this in, in incredibly tight coupling between our ability to attribute consciousness to others, uh, awareness and, and um, agency to others, and our, um, our ability to function in a cooperative fashion, to empathize with each other, to um, feel emotion for each other. So I, I see that as uh, key, key to who we are as a species, basically. Okay. So in other words, you, you do feel like there's uh, a validity or, or an interesting side to, to, to deliberate creation of altered states of consciousness? Well, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, I haven't studied altered states of consciousness. Yeah. Um, I think there are a lot of altered states of consciousness, obviously. I just, I, I don't know what role they play. I mean, what you're saying sounds yeah, really interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, sp uh, I spent an, uh, two weekends ago, I was, I was on a particular uh, retreat, a weekend. It was a, a shamanic ritual thing, and, and I ingested a, 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 a plant medicine called uh, San Pedro, which has mescaline in it. And hmm. um, I spent a good... Well, I, don't, I have no concept of time. That's one of the things that just goes. Time, time and self just goes. It's probably that prefrontal cortex thing we were talking about just down-regulates. <laughs> and uh, I spent a good, what felt like two hours, chatting with a tree. And <laughs> basically just hanging, hanging out with a tree and feeling like extremely connected with nature and with earth. And right. um, it, was it was very restorative and rejuvenating. And like, you know... It, it it felt amazing and the and the and and it quite lucid and the and the takeaways from that I can still reflect on now, um, a couple of weeks later, um, and it's almost like I don't know it, it it's almost like I absorbed wisdom from something out there. I don't this probably doesn't tie in with the mechanistic view of the brain. It was probably something maybe within myself or I was projecting my my awareness was projecting consciousness into the tree. Um, so it was, I was probably just learning from myself. Right, according to your theory. Well, so yeah, exactly. That that's that's the perspective I would take. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is I don't I don't know enough about altered states of consciousness to to comment on them. But the general link between consciousness and our social connectedness is very deep. This is really mm. fundamental to, to us as a species. Mm. So that, that I absolutely agree with. It's amazing. Your, your theory, um, when, I, when I think about your theory, um, it's, it's so much around empathy. Um, and and we, we, yeah. project, we project onto the other. It's, that's what really is the, the complexity of, of human beings. Is that, in your view, what stands us apart from animals lower down the, the order? Well, I think that a lot of other species have um, a surprising amount of this kind of social uh, capability and projection of, of mind states onto others. I think there's a lot of that. I think uh, the evidence, as far as I understand, is that humans are hugely more sophisticated in that way. Uh, but we might be surprised at what other animals are capable oh, of. Oh, 100%. But, uh, 
Yes, but but yes, I think humans are are uniquely, uh, you know, we to, to, our our social machinery is revved up to this incredible extent. It's like the 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 volume knob got turned up yeah, to yeah. eleven or something. Yeah. In, in, uh, and and that gave us an incredible um, advantage yeah. because we're the species that works cooperatively and can therefore do almost anything. We sometimes work cooperatively, don't we? But sometimes, we, yes. we really sometimes don't, and that's <laughs> and that's that, and that's what I'm fascinated by. It seems like when we're in a certain state, we we operate cooperatively, and that's what I was talking about with the with the ego. This like, it it seems like when we're in this certain state of mind too much, then we don't act cooperatively. So well, yeah, that that's interesting. I do wonder how that works. I wonder if it gets in our way sometimes. Because part of social intelligence is finding your in-group yeah. and cooperating yeah. with the in-group in opposition to other groups. Yeah. And that's a, that's a very nasty habit we get into. I agree. Like it, I have this sense, and this is not backed by any theory, <laughs> that we, we've almost evolved um, too fast and we haven't yet caught up. Like so, So we've developed this prefrontal cortex and it has this fantastic ability to project into the future and to see ourselves as separate and it's almost like we haven't yet evolved to the degree that we can use that as a really helpful tool for our for all of our well-being and now you know that's why we're there's wars and famine and inequality of wealth and all that sort of thing yeah that could be um we're certainly yeah humans are very smart but very irrational, mm. and um, often you hear the talking heads comment on how stupid people are, but it's really not like that. Pe- people are extraordinarily intelligent in an intellectual sense, like mind-bogglingly intelligent. Mm. It's not like mm. people are too stupid to understand something like, I don't know, global warming or something like that, like all the intricacies one can understand, but there's this incredibly profound irrationality to us as well. That uh, kind of cuts the other direction. It really yeah. does. It's it's like profoundly stupid smartness sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. So uh, I wanted to just ask some very sh- uh, quick questions. Uh, you know, just yeah. like just just like a, a lot of these are, have come from questions that have uh, come from from viewers um, and fans of the show. Um, I let sure. them know that I was going to be talking to you and put some information about, about you, and they, and they were curious to know the answers to some of these things. Um, sure. So what, what, has been, uh, what have been um, the peak experiences of your life? Oh, my. Uh, I know, a big question. <laughs> well, crea- being creative, creating something, mm. and knowing that it is high quality mm. in any domain um, to me, that's, uh, you know, if I had, if I had to write down a mission statement <laughs> yep. for myself, I would say, be creative. That's my mission statement or rather that has yeah. been some, can, can you some tune sense. into the, can you tune into the why, why that's so important or is it more no fundamental than that? Is it just, does that no just idea. feel like your purpose? I mean, uh, I would say that applies across the board, whether it's, uh, Science, there's this unbelievable thrill when you realize you've figured something out, and it's it's much more it's uh, it's much more satisfying and much more elating than say getting it published and having your colleagues pat you on the head for it. You know that's fine, 
But the moment when you realize, wait a minute, I just discovered something. Uh, mm. That's a that's a shockingly satisfying moment. Or writing a, a a story and struggling with it for a year and a half, and finally saying, okay, I'm done with it, and it's 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 pretty good. Or to go in the same direction, you know, having a child. Yeah. I have a son. Yeah. In a sense, this is a creative act, right? Of course. Uh, and there's something very satisfying about, about in, in, in almost in the same wavelength, there's uh, yeah. something satisfying. It, do you feel like it's, it's – it's, that's interesting. So do you feel like your, mu- your musical or writing creations are, are of the same ilk – as that genetically implanted, it must be genetically implanted desire or uh, to to procreate, to to have offspring or some sort of expression of our being. I think there's a similarity there. Yeah. I mean, of course, having a child is uh, much more intensive. It's yes. much and larger <laughs> thrill. Yes, yes, <laughs> but yes. There's a kind of a, there's a similarity. It's of the same ilk. A, yeah. It's an act of of yeah creativeness expression yeah yeah i love that okay um next question how how can we all treat our brain better oh well <clears throat> don't watch so darn much tv <laughs> <laughs> yep uh, eat right <laughs> exercise right but also people who exercise their brains um, you know, there's the, 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 the standard finding that um, there's this uh, uh, academicians are um, somewhat protected against Alzheimer's. Mm. So use your brain. Uh, well, not just academicians, but anyone who has a very mentally active lifestyle. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the, the more you use your brain, the, the, the better it gets. That's yeah. uh, one, one yeah. of the mistakes I think almost everyone makes, we have this concept of intelligence and talent as these inborn things and you're stuck with it and then you go through life doing the best you can with what you have. Um, but as far as I can tell, the evidence suggests that intelligence and talent are these self-created things and the more you work at something, the better you get at it. Yeah, so, okay. Well, that's the next question. Learning. Like the, this division of IQ of and EQ, like I read a book by a guy called Daniel Goleman uh, called Emotional Intelligence. And yeah. he claims that, you know, our success in life is, is very much dictated by our EQ rather than our IQ. And right. that our, our IQ is quite static. Like that's like the hardware that we've been given perhaps. Oh. And, and the EQ is, seems to be like software that we can upgrade. Um, well... I totally agree that EQ, I mean, it's a simplified construct, but it's a useful construct. EQ is much more associated with success. And the reason is, going back to this whole social thing, we're just this incredibly social species. And everything that we do that makes people successful depends on the network of other people around us. You can be this the uh, smartest, wisest dude in the world. But, you know, I mean, just think about the presidential election. Nobody elects a president unless the guy can connect with people. So everything is emotional intelligence. Everything is emotional intelligence. I mean, that's paramount. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I don't agree that that's labile and 
learnable while intellectual intelligence IQ is not. I mean, they're both um, changeable. They're, you, you can alter these things with practice, uh, but yes, there's probably also some inborn quality to them as well. I mean, there are people who really have very low emotional IQ mm. and you can get better with practice, but you may never get above normal. Mm. And there's some people who are born with brilliant emotional IQ and yeah. if they don't use it, it can atrophy somewhat, but you know, you, you have a starting point and you can manipulate that starting point. And I think that's true for all kinds of IQ. Fantastic answer. Thanks a lot for that. That, that clears it up. Final question, uh, Michael, I, I have to ask, I was reading an article in which you reference ventriloquism and then I, oh, jump, yeah. and then I jump onto the internet and I see that, that you've got a, a sidekick, um, a sidekick monkey called Kevin, apparently. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about this, uh, this hobby of yours. Well, it started when my son was three. I started making his stuffed animals talk. Cool. And uh, here's a secret to learning ventriloquism. The secret is have a three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> because he was too young to know how bad I was. <laughs> yeah. So I could practice it without you yeah. know, embarrassment. Um, but on the other hand, he was a, he was quite a stern taskmaster. You know, he made me practice it hours a day, hours, hours, because it was so fun for him. I couldn't yeah. get out of it. So, uh, it just tuned itself up. And now, you know, six years later, yeah. uh, I can go on the road with it. That's so, uh, oh, good. Or oh, you actually perform in front of uh, not your own children now. Yeah. So what, one of the points I make, what uh, I, I I drag Kevin, he's a big fluffy orangutan. I drag him around to my scientific talks because he makes this point that everyone in the audience knows he's a piece of cloth. He's got no brain, no mind, but everyone in the audience perceives a mind in him. You can't help it. Mm. And he makes this point that people come equipped with this machinery that this brain circuitry that automatically projects mind onto things and ventriloquism is a is a um a particularly vivid example of that mm. so i I, I do little ventriloquist acts interesting that's great so really that is that is what your theory is all about how yep. how so, we 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 project consciousness onto the on, onto kevin the monkey yes and I projected exactly. consciousness onto that big majestic tree on yes. that one day. Okay, interesting. We do it to each other as well. We do it to each other as well. Wow. Are you, um, you, talk, you referenced before about how we, the science of consciousness is dwelling on, you know, how do we perceive the color red? Yeah. Um, so when you think about the, the science of consciousness or this whole realm, are you, you seem to be quite aware of the, the vast amounts of stuff that we just don't know. Like, yeah. So do, do you leave room in the discussion in your mind for the possibility that you're just quite wrong and that, and that, and that everyone's wrong and that we really have no idea and we'll never find out? Uh, of course we could all be wrong. One must be mindful of that as a scientist. Yeah. My suspicion is that we're, we're closing in okay. on the essential answer and that the details may take 
decades or centuries to fill in, but that we're closing in on the essential answer. And my intuition, my sense is that we're going to see this mainly in artificial intelligence. This is where kind of the proof of the pudding is going to be. And and um, on a very short time scale, we're going to see uh, artificial intelligence reach this point where we interact with it without being able to tell the difference, without, you know, interacting with intelligent software that is effectively as aware as we are. Yeah, I read some article coming out of of Facebook because they're putting a lot of money into, Zuckerberg's putting a lot of money into artificial intelligence. And yeah, it's it's kind of a mind-blowing area. Yeah. Like part of yep. part of me gets scared of, by it because because of all the movies that I've seen, you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ah, machines taking over, running the world. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. maybe they'll, you know, maybe artificial intelligence will have all the good bits and none of the bad bits, and we'll be learning from yeah. them, and we'll be learning well, about compassion and stuff like that from robots. <laughs> I I suspect it will totally restructure our society. And yeah. probably in all kinds of ways, both horrible and good, most of which we can't even anticipate. No, we cannot. We cannot. Isn't that fascinating? Well, on that note, uh, Michael, I'm going to thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating. And, sure. Um, yeah, I really love chatting with you. And can you please just tell our listeners uh, your latest book, uh, the name of your latest book? Uh, the latest book is Consciousness and the Social Brain. It's by uh, uh, Oxford University Press. Great. So, okay. Check All it right. out. And we'll put links to that and, uh, and, and also to your other books. Thank you so much for your time, Michael, and uh, all the best. Well, guys, I think you'll agree that Professor Graziano is one pretty cool dude with a very varied take on life. And I loved his humility and curiosity. And uh, sometimes I come to these conversations with with neuroscientists or academics, you know, kind of aware of my lack of knowledge around certain ideas and certain areas. But um, yeah, he was a really cool guy to interview and very, very humble and very open with what he doesn't know and what he does know. And um, the key takeaway for me from that episode was that awesome way to look at the creative process. So first of all, just allow yourself to flow, like really like um, release let it just come out, uh, slip into a flow state, use whatever techniques you have, um, breathing, binaural beats, whatever it is that helps you get into a zone of creativity. And then overlay that with logic and reason and analysis and, and critical thought. And a fantastic way to do this, um, I've learned from one of my mentors, Taki Moore, is to create frameworks for everything you do. So say you wanted to write a blog post or say you wanted to write anything, an essay, uh, paper for, for college, create a framework. So where you um, start out with your, you create a box for your intro, create a box for your conclusion. And then for each passage or each chapter, um, you obviously need to have the content and you need to have like a few points. You need to have a case study or a piece of evidence or a quote uh, or a story to back it up, create boxes for all of these things. Um, and that sort of rigidity allows you the allows you a sort of a playground to play in. Um, it allows you a playground to get creative in. Um, so there you go, guys. That's, that's Michael Graziano. Make sure you check out his book, um, both of his books. But his most recent one is The Brain. No, it's not. It's uh, Consciousness and the Social Brain. But apparently his 
his book, God, Soul, Mind, Brain, a Neuroscientist Reflection on the Spirit World. Apparently that one is far more accessible for non-neuroscience types. Cool, guys. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please jump onto iTunes or Stitcher and just leave us a positive rating or review if you like the content. Email me, Jero, at theflowstatecollector.com if you've got any comments. Um, and yeah, thanks, guys. Just keep on spreading the word. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Flow State Performance Podcast. Check us out at www.flowstateperformance.com for more inspiration to unleash your potential.